We are going to finish up our study of the book of Hebrews today. And I know it's been a long road, uh, but it's, I hope it's been helpful to you. If you have your Bibles, flip over to chapter 13 of Hebrews. Chapter 13 of the book of Hebrews. Um, this is an unusual chapter. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13 is unusual because it, it, it has the feel, sort of, this is the best way I could describe it to you. It has the feel of a man who's trying to have a two-hour conversation on a cell phone, but the cell phone's batteries are running out because it, it just feels kind of hurried and all over the place. Sort of like if you were trying to, uh, you know, if you were uh, trying to tell your, your children in the last minute everything they needed to know in their life and, you, and you're like, okay, let me tell you, and you're just trying to get everything in there and just feels disjointed a little bit. It just seems like he's all over the map because, I mean, this is, this is how it flows. We're going to get into it, but it, this is how it flows. It says, hey, be hospitable to strangers, visit those that are in prison, guard your marriage and, and don't love money, and watch out for the tabernacle, and it should be grace alone, so let's all go outside the camp with Jesus, and that's, that's it. And it's just like all over the map. However, after studying it a little bit more and digging into it, I think we'll see that what he's doing is he's addressing how you and I as, as believers in Jesus should relate to people inside of the covenant community and how we should relate with people outside of the covenant community of Christ. And so... Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to walk through this thing kind of verse by verse, and we're, we're going to stop, and we're going to talk about it until we're done. And so we're going to get through all of chapter 13 today. And I know some of you are like, I have been here when you're doing this sort of thing, Pastor Dave, and, and we're going to be here for six hours. No, I promise you, we will, we will get out by, by 2 o'clock this afternoon. I pro no, I'm kidding. Some of you are like, you better be kidding. I, I am. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So let's read, we're going to begin in verse 1. The first, the first part of these scriptures deals with our relationships, mostly with our relationships outside the community of those who believe in Jesus. Hebrews 13.1 begins, by, though, by saying, let brotherly love continue. So he starts with this brief little sentence that says we have a responsibility to love one another. We, we've been adopted by God the, 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 through Christ as co-heirs. That, that's what scriptures say. So that means that you and I, since we've been adopted by, by the Father, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's this first little line that, that says you and I have a responsibility to do life together. We're going to come back to some more of that. But then after that one little sentence, he goes into the next verse and he expands this idea about our responsibilities to other people. And he, and he tells us this in verse 2. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. He's saying we should show hospitality toward those outside of the Christian community. We should have people into our homes that are outside of the, co the covenant community of Christ. Now that's important for us because we live in a day and age in our culture, in evangelical culture in America, there is this strong, strong tendency among evangelicals to treat those outside of Christ as if they have the sin disease and that we can catch it like the flu. So if we're around them, somehow we're going to get messed up by being around them. It's, it's this idea, uh, you know, of saying, hey, you better not, you know, hang out with somebody who drinks, smokes, cusses and chews or hangs around with girls that do uh, you know, uh, the, I started to say do's so it would rhyme, but, but that didn't make any sense. Because if you do that, then your kids are going to end up smoking and drinking and they're going to listen to Metallica and they're going to kill you at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. And you, you don't want that, do you? No, I don't want that. Well, then don't hang out with sinful people. And, and it's, it's almost a sort of fear-mongering. It's this us versus them mentality. And the scripture here are teaching the exact opposite of that whole attitude. They're saying, hey, you actually ought to have them over for dinner. You ought to have, us, have them over for dinner. So, so, for so many of us, we've had pounded into our head that it's this us versus them mentality. And, and it's, it's even more so today in, in today's 
uh, divisive political structure that we begin to think in political terms and we think people on one side of the political, political aisle are sinners and the other ones are saints and, and has, you know, their, your relationship with Jesus has nothing to do with your politics. I mean, it will influence your politics, but I'm just saying you can't determine somebody's walk with God by their politics. And so we end up with this us versus them mentality. And when Jesus says in the word, hey, you actually ought to cook them something. You ought to invite them over to your house and cook them food and don't make it like pickled beets or something, you know. Make it, make it, you know, kill the fatted calf. Put it on for them. Have them in for dinner. And listen, in the church, not just this church, but I'm talking about the church at large, the church in North America, we have to change our thinking or we're doomed because the church in North America is in an, uh, in an unbelievably sharp decline right now. And the problem is not the message. The gospel is still as relevant as ever before. The gospel of Jesus Christ can change lives just as much as it has ever been able to change lives. There's just as much power there as there has ever been. The problem is with us. There, did you know that there are 50 churches a week that are closing their doors for the last time? At this point in time, 50 churches every week. In, in the next 12 to 20 years, if things go the way that they're going, the trend that they're going, one third of all American churches will cease to exist. Are you tracking with me? Now understand. Now, now the, the majority of those are sort of mainline churches that have lost touch with the gospel. So that has a lot to do with it. But I think we have to look at ourselves and we have to say, okay, what does it mean to be the church in America today? Now, there are two types of ministry prevalent in America today. The first, the first kind of church and the first type, kind of ministry is, is called attractional ministry. And this is the philosophy that says we should do things to attract people to church. So, you know, it's the idea that says let's build big buildings and big gymnasiums and big coffee houses and we'll attract the world in with our resources. And I'm not here to say that there's anything wrong with that at all. But the idea is that we build things that are attractive to unchurched people. And then as lost people come in, we'll share the gospel with them. And that is a way of doing ministry. It's called attraction-based or attractional ministry. Now, as I said, there's nothing wrong with that. Because the, the Bible talks about evangelism in two different ways. There's, there, is the, there is the come and see model. Come and taste. Come and see what God is doing. So there is that attractional side, but there's also the go and tell. The problem with the attractional-based uh, uh, ministry is that even though there's nothing wrong with it, but it's but without the second kind of ministry, all of that all that kind of uh, ministry model does is create a culture of consumerism within the church. You see, if everything we do is about, hey, let's do some of this, this thing, let's build this big uh, building, let's build a gym, let's build this, let's do that, let's attract people in. If that's all we ever do, then what we're going to end up creating is people who are saying, well, I like the attractions at this church, but I like the attractions over at that church more. And so we begin to become consumers that, that are trying to find something that, that meets what I want. You see what I'm saying? So the reality is, even though there's nothing wrong with that, because that is, that is a valid type of ministry, the foundation of all true life-changing church, church ministry is something we call incarnational ministry. Incarnational. Let me try to define that. Here's what we believe. We believe that you, in a very real sense, are Christ in the flesh for the world around you. You are the hands of Jesus reaching out. You are the feet of Jesus going into the community. You are the mouthpiece of God as you speak the gospel to people. We believe that ministry takes place in your neighborhood because you have been called as a missionary. And the end goal of discipleship is mission. It always is. If discipleship 
does not end in mission, then you aren't really creating disciples at all because a disciple is constantly trying to tell people about Jesus, trying to bring people into the, into the family of God. It's all about ministry and mission when you're a true disciple of Christ. And if what we do terminates on ourselves, then it terminates on nothing and it's not really discipleship at all. And I, I think if you've been around church long enough at all, you have probably met that guy in church that is absolutely correct in doctrine, but they're wrong in heart. You know what I'm talking about? The person that has all the theology right, but you can't stand to be around him because of the way they treat people. So th this thing does not terminate on itself. Our call is to be in the world. Now we say we're in, uh, we're in the world, but not of the world. And a lot of us have, have, have taken the extreme view of saying, well, come out from among them and be ye separate and that sort of thing. And that is a great verse, but it does, has nothing to do with how we're supposed to live the mission of God in the world in which we live. Our call is to be in the world. The reality is you are missionaries to your neighborhood. You're a missionary to your business. You're a missionary to wherever you shop, wherever you go, wherever you are. Incarnational ministry is, is where you are there doing life together with people who don't know Jesus Christ. How can you be light in the darkness if you won't step into the darkness? If you're not willing to enter into the life of somebody who is walking in darkness, if you're not willing to have them say, I want you to be my friend. I want you to, I want you to come along with me. I'm not going to compromise anything to be your friend. Don't, don't misunderstand me there. I'm going to stay strong. I'm going to stand tall for Jesus. I'm going to live my life for the glory of God. But I want to be friends with this person because I know if they don't see Christ in me, they may not see him in anyone. That's incarnational ministry. So we believe that while buildings are important and there's nothing wrong with these things, you know, we're not going to, we're not, my, my belief is we're not ever going to invest millions of dollars in, in uh, large buildings with multiple basketball courts so that you can play basketball here. Because what we believe, what I believe personally, is that you should not play ball here. You should play ball at the local gym. You should play ball wherever the, wherever the world is playing ball. You should go there and play basketball there because that's where Christ has you. That's your mission field. It is. So, you know, we're not going to build a big coffee house. Now, I'm not saying we're, we're I'm, you know, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I'm not saying about anything about having a coffee bar in church, but we're not going to build a building and say, hey, this is our Christian coffee house because here's why. The reason is because there are like 4 billion Starbucks with a nine mile radius. So just pick one. Just pick one and go to that one every single day. Here's, here's the key to incarnational ministry. Go to the same one every single day. Learn your barista's name. Get to know about their life. Learn how you can pray for them. You find out what's going on in their life and make a difference. That is incarnational ministry. I remember when I was in Georgetown, there was, a, we, I went to Hardy's a lot and I did that intentionally. <laughs> Some of you are like, I, yeah, I can tell you went to Hardy's a lot. Um, but, but there are lots of places to eat. But I started going there because I, I thought to myself, I want to go here often enough that I can start to get to know the people. And as I started to get to know the people, there was one gal in particular, and she was a young, uh, 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 unwed, uh, she was pregnant. She wasn't a mother yet. Well, she was, but the, mother, the baby hadn't been born. And, uh, and as I got to know her, and, 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 and began to talk with her. I remember one time I began to realize the power of this model because one time as I was going through the drive-thru and she was at the drive-thru window and I, and, it, and I stopped there and she gave me her food. I said, hey, how are things going for you? Uh, how's, your, how's your baby doing? This is after the child had been born. And she started opening up. She said, man, I just, I tell you what, you know, they started telling me what the difficult, difficulty she was dealing with and what she was walking through and the hard times that she was having. And you know what? I got to have it. I got right there in the drive-thru. I had the chance to pray with her. And that's not going to happen if all I care about is getting my food in two minutes or less. If my focus is all on me, I'm never going to be the salt and the light that I need to be. But if I make this choice and say, hey, I'm going to go to the same place. 
I'm going to go there intentionally every day. I'm going to, even if I order something, if, if I have to order the same thing every day, if I go there, I'm doing it not so that I can get my lunch. I'm going there and doing this so that I can meet the people who work, can work there, who work there, and I can begin to get to know them so that, uh, that we have enough of a relationship that I can say, hey, how's your family? How can I pray with you? I want you to know you've been on my heart. I've been praying for you. Is there anything I can pray for you specifically about? This is incarnational ministry. This is us. It's to engage the world around you, to show hospitality to strangers. Now, the truth is this requires initiative on our part because, you know, strangers don't just come and knock on your door unless it's Halloween, right? Which is the one night of the year uh, when they do that, you know, but they don't come and you're like, knock, you know, and you're like, and you open the door and they're like, hey, cook me dinner. You know, that, that's actually the one guy you probably shouldn't let in. <laughs> Don't let that one in the, in the door. But, but, but it requires some initiative on our part because it is awkward and it is scary. And we live in a world that people are holding other people more and more at arm's length. So it's more difficult. But, but let me put it this way. Here's a way to think of it this way in your life and in your neighborhood. Don't build a back porch. Build a front porch. Does that make sense? Be out front. Know your neighbors. It's, it's why Christ puts you there. It's what Acts 17 says, that he has determined the, the, the borders, the, the places where we will live. He's put you there on purpose. And, and when he moves you to another neighborhood, he's put you there on purpose. It's not chance. It's not accidental. It's not because you're moving up in the world and buying a bigger house. It's because God said this neighborhood needs this family to be a witness for the gospel right now. That's what God's doing. The, the, and the reason, listen, there are so many bored Christians in church. They just go through the motions, come, sing the songs, listen to the message, go home, and they're bored in their walk with Christ. And the reason why so many of us are bored out of our minds is because we have never really engaged the mission, like, like, which is the whole purpose for which we are here. Listen, ch church is, is, is one, it's the only one I know of, but, it, but it's certainly one of the few organizations in the world that does not exist solely to meet the needs of its members. Every organization, other organization on earth, it's all about the members. What can we do? How can we take care of the members? And, and, and I'm not saying that we don't care for the members. The Bible is very clear that we do. That's why he said, let brotherly love continue. But, but we're not here. Listen, everything that we do outside of evangelism and the church can be done in heaven. Worship encouragement we can talk we can we can glorify god together but you know what the one thing we can't do in heaven we can't evangelize i was thinking about that this morning when i get to heaven i'm i'm, I'm out of a job there's not going to be any preaching in heaven there's nobody to preach to i don't have any gospel to proclaim to anybody all we're going to do every one of us is going to be preachers because we're all going to be talking about the glories of god and what he did and how he saved us and all the the miracles that he did in our lives and we're all going to be preaching that and glorifying god but 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 this we exist the reason we're here in marion arkansas is not just so that we can gather together and we can worship and sing our songs together that's important it's valuable we encourage one another but the reason we exist right here in marion is to be salt and light right here in Marion. Do you hear what I'm saying? The, the church, according to Ephesians 3.10, is a tool in the hand of God to make known His manifest wisdom to the world. We are a missional agency. That's all we are. God, and God wants to show His wisdom to the world and He chooses to use you and me to do it in this church. And, and listen to me, this is exactly why we have to die to our personal preferences. That's exactly why. Because the church does not exist to cater to you and to me. We are here on a mission. It's not about us. Like, let me give you a simple example. If I was the pastor of a church in an in, uh, in inner city church somewhere, uh, the style of worship would probably be very, very different than what we experience today. Uh, you know, in fact, you might even, in a city setting like that, 
You might even use rap music in your worship set. And, and listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not a fan of rap music. In fact, I have a hard time putting those two words together because I feel like it's a very, it's a very intriguing skill. I'm not saying that's not a very, there's not, not talent there, but if there's no harmony, no melody to go along with, with the rhythm, then I have a hard time calling it music. But that's just me. That's just me. That's my personal preference. That's just where I line up. However, in the end, it, just because it's, even though it's not my preference, it's not about me. It's not about my preference. I'll give you another example. I have a friend, uh, somebody, uh, when we lived in Reno, he was the high school rodeo chaplain. I don't know if you know it, but out west, they have high school rodeo, not just football and tennis. They got high school rodeo. And he was the high school rodeo chaplain. And, and, uh, and he went around and he did all these cowboy church things at different rodeos. Well, I'm here to tell you, their music sounded nothing like what we had here today. Because all those cowboys would be sitting around saying, what in the world are you doing here? You know, what is that? What tarnation? You know, that's what it would be. Because they're like, that's not the music we listen to. That doesn't appeal to us. We don't, know, we don't know how to sing those kind of melodies. We don't know what you're doing. All of their music, even if it was a modern song, it always had kind of a country twang to it. And listen, if I were doing that ministry, even if that wasn't my preference, that's exactly the music I'd be insisting that the worship team do because it's not about me, it's not about my preference, not about the music I like, it's about, it's about being a church that's in the context of the surrounding culture and, and, and that's what I should use in spite of the fact that I, that I don't like it or don't want it because it's not about me, it's not about my preference. The mission of God is about me engaging people with the gospel in the context of where I find my life happening. If someone came up to me and said, hey, I don't know why they'd sound like that. <laughs> just had a, but they have to have a voice. Hey, I, I want to go to Africa, but here's the deal. I want to do missions, but I'm not eating their food, and I'm not learning their language, and I'm not going to dress like them. Well, you know what I would tell them? I'd say, listen, there is no way that we as a church are going to help you get there. Because somehow or another, you think that this thing is about you. In the same way, I'm, I'm overwhelmed at how many of us go in the church, and this is that consumer culture that says, well, if it's not like this and like this and like this, if they don't have this, if they don't have that, then I'm, I'm, I'm out. I'm not in here. To join a church that will cater to your needs but that is not on mission is incredibly dangerous and destructive because all it does is reinforce your self-centeredness. I, I want to be honest with you, man. We, we are on mission. That's our goal. Maybe we don't always hit the mark, but that's what we're shooting for as a church to be on mission. You, and you have Jesus here going, hey, you, you need to have these the people, these strangers, these people outside the church, you need to have them in your house. Don't avoid them. Don't tell them how wrong they are. No, have them in their home. Show hospitality to strangers. All right, we need to move on because this uh, we've only made it through two verses and some of you are like, man, this is going to take forever. But I promise you it's going to speed up from here on out. But let's look at the second thing, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you were also in the, in the body. Okay, so, so first of all, he says, as followers of Christ, you have a responsibility to the world outside of you. You are to be the hands and the feet and, and the life of Christ in your neighborhood and at work. You, you're to have those outside of your faith into your home. You are on mission here in Marion, West Memphis, Memphis, uh, wherever, you, wherever you, you're from, that's where you're on mission. On top of that, he says in this verse, we cannot, cannot, cannot turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the oppressed and the ill-treated in our society. And if you'll remember Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells the story of the sheep and the goats. You remember that story? It's where he separates people into two different groups. 
And to one group, he says, listen, I was thirsty and, and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I needed shelter and you would, you would, didn't, you would not provide any for me. And I was in prison and you would not visit me. And, and in response, you know, the, this group all freaks out in that moment. They say, what? what? What are you talking about, Jesus? When did we see you like that and ignore you? Anybody remember his answer? He said, when you ignored the least of these people with these problems, you ignored me. We cannot ignore those who are oppressed and ill-treated. Now, that's a hard thing in this world because in our culture right now, everybody wants to claim that they are oppressed. But you know what? There are some that really are. There are some that really are ill-treated. We need to pay attention to those situations. We can't ignore that. And this is a really hard sell in suburbia because, listen, we just don't really see a lot of real po poverty in suburbia. You know, I mean, how many people do you know that are really, really poor? Because, I, I mean, we think poor means that they only have one car and they don't have a television in their bathroom. You know, you know, oh, bless their hearts. What do they do when they get dressed? You know, that's our idea of poor. But we, we don't really have a grasp on poverty. If you want a grasp on poverty, the best thing you can do is go on a missions trip somewhere and you'll begin to see poverty. Go with me sometime. I've been to Haiti two or three times now. I can't remember. My brain just fails me. You want to see poverty, go to a nation like Haiti, the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. You'll understand poverty and you'll begin to realize that, that poverty means something very different in America than it does in other places around the world. Nevertheless, there are people living in America that are living in poverty. And, and, there's, and w there's something we have to learn. That, and and that there, those of us who live in suburbia, we have to learn we have a biblical responsibility to the city. And, and those of us with wealth have a biblical responsibility to those who are destitute. And you're saying, I'm not wealthy. Well, in, when you talk about in terms of worldwide, you probably are within the top 1% to 2% of all of the population of the world when it comes to wealth. And I know that's hard to believe, but that's the reality. Listen, Proverbs 21, 13, those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Proverbs 28, 27, whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to poverty will be cursed. But here's what we know. Just a few minutes from here, hope wanes and poverty crushes. And we have to remember, even right here in Marion, there are people that are living in, in West Memphis, living in, in, in poverty. And our, our, we have to remember our primary responsibility is not Asia. Although we were, we're going to do all that we can to reach all of Asia. Our primary responsibility is not Africa. Though we, we support missionaries in Africa and in Asia and in Europe and South America and Central America, all around the world, we, we support missionaries there. But our primary responsibility is not those places. Our, I'm talking about us right here, our primary responsibility is here, now, Marion, West Memphis area. The scriptures say, say within the confines of, of a lost world, the Christian's responsibility is to show hospitality to the stranger and give to the oppressed. That's why, that's why in just a, a couple of short weeks, and I need to, this is another thing I should have been mentioning, but, but uh, we're, we're, we do a turkey giveaway. We're doing a turkey giveaway uh, very soon. It's not because it's a great marketing tool for us. It's because there are people who need food for Thanksgiving. Now, does that mean that everybody comes and gets a turkey? Because we're not doing like a, you know, we're not doing a, having them fill out a financial form. We can analyze whether they have need. Are there going to be people who come to get a turkey don't really need it? I'm sure there will be, but that's between them and the Lord. But there are going to be people who are going to be here. They're going to pick up a turkey, and that's the only reason they're going to have a meal for their family for Thanksgiving. That's why we do those kind of things. Now, he's going to kind of move on from there and give us two dangers that we need to watch out for as we live uh, life. Look, look at verse four. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Marriage bed, that's talking about sex there. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now I want to explain the practical way this thing works out because what, what it says here is as you live life in the world, loving the stranger and giving to the press, you must guard and contend for the health of your marriage. 
And he's going to get into marriage and money in these next couple of verses, which, by the way, to this day, are still two of the biggest killers of men. He's going to say, first of all, marriage is difficult. Contend for it. Fight for it. You know, you know there, there is, a, and anybody that says marriage is not difficult are either A, not married, or B, newlyweds. <laughs> right? That's just the reality of it. Because, listen, you, you've got two uh, people who have been broken by sin. Even if they come to know Christ, they still have all this past, all this sin, all these things that Christ is working on in their life. And when you come together, those things don't go away. You end up with a marriage of two people with those issues together living in the same house. And while one person is working on their issues, another person is working on their issues, and they're, they're, they're trying to figure out how to live together. And, and, and the reality is, marriage is one of the greatest tools in the hands of the Lord to mature you in Christ if you'll let Him use your spouse, which for us men is really, really hard to do. Let's just be real. But, but I want you to know this. You know, we live in a culture, and sometimes, you know, it's, you know, it's just a joke or whatever, but so many times... And I can't speak for women, you know, because I, I, I don't know what you talk about when you're, uh, when you're alone, when you're just ladies together. I mean, I always, my imagination, it must, it's Hobby Lobby. That's, in my, you know, that's, a, that's what I imagine. I don't really know because if I'm there, then you're not alone, right? But, but when guys get together, there, there's this tendency sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes you get certain groups of guys together especially, and they'll start talking and they'll start making jokes about you know, oh man, well I would do it, but the old ball and chain, all this kind of stuff. But you know what? There is an unbelievable amount of power in a man who passionately works to love his wife deeply and to be faithful to her. Where in that moment, if he speaks up and he says, ball and chain, what, what are you talking about? It's more like wings in my life. My wife let, helps me fly. I'm telling you, in a crowd of men in, 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 that hear that sort of situation, they hear somebody say like, like, something like that, they're inside, they're going to be longing to talk to that man to try to figure out, how do you do that? How do you do that? That's what I want, but that's what's missing. Did you know that nearly 60% of all marriages fail within the evangelical community? I'm not talking outside the church. In fact, a few years ago, the rate of divorce inside the church actually passed the rate of divorce outside the church. I don't know if it's leveled out. I haven't checked. But that tells me marriage is hard. And marriage, if, it, if I go into marriage thinking marriage is about making me happy, I'm in trouble. That marriage is in trouble from the very beginning. I have to go into marriage thinking about how in that marriage I'm going to make her happy. If anybody ever says to you, marriage is 50-50, they don't know what they're talking about. They say, oh, it's about compromise. Everybody meet halfway. No, you don't know what you're talking about. That's not marriage. Marriage is each partner giving 100%. That's the, way, that's the only way it works. Otherwise, it's destructive and painful. But you must contend for. You must fight for marriage. One of the reasons is that marriage is the primary shadow that teaches us the love and the mercy and pursuit of Jesus Christ. Because what is the church? It is the bride of Christ. So that means marriage, you know, we've talked a lot in the past about those pictures and the shadows that God paints on all creation. Marriage is one of those shadows. It's one of those pictures that he paints. And he says, this, this is what it's like. It's this relationship between husband and wife. This is, this is a picture of my relationship with you. So it shows us the love of Christ and the mercy of Christ and, and the pursuit of Jesus in, uh, of us in our lives. And where you don't contend for your marriage and it explodes, there is deep heartbreak and there is immense suffering Oftentimes, it's not just the spouses, but if there are children involved, it's always difficult for them. All right, then he's going to lead into the next one. So, so we have to guard our marriages. Then in verse 5, keep your life free from love of what? Money. And be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? So first of all, he says, we can be content with what we have because we know Jesus is with us, he's going to take care of us. Now, I have heard this text used to make rich people feel guilty for being rich, usually by fo followed by passing the offering plate, right? Well, you shouldn't have all that. We should. <laughs> that's, that's kind of a, it's kind of a weird twist on things. But let me be really honest with you. I want you to understand this. I want you to hear this. This is so important. Wealth is not wrong. Wealth is not sinful. However, the desire for it is. It's the love of money. It's the love of money. We, as followers of Christ, do not strive after money. We do all that we do for the glory of God, not to get rich. Now, if wealth comes, praise God. But that's not our pursuit. Our pursuit is to glorify God. Therefore, that means we become the perfect worker. It means that you're not playing solitaire on your computer. I mean, do you still do that? Do they still have solitaire on the computers? You know, or whatever it is, a minesweeper. That was the one I used to. I love minesweeper. Uh, but uh, uh, but you're, not, you're not doing that. You're not wasting time on Facebook or TikTok, depending on your age group. You know, you're, you're, you're working. You're, you're a picture of what your employee wants for their company as an employee. And as I said, if wealth comes, praise God. But we don't strive after that. We are content with where we are and what we have. And the, and the general truth of life is, if you're not content now with what you have, you really never will be content with any more. You really won't be. If you think that getting out of your 800 square foot house and getting into 8,000 square feet is going to make you happy, I'm just here to tell you you're wrong. Because you're just going to introduce new wants and new desires because now you're like, well, now i got to have new furniture to fill up this house. And now i got to have a bigger TV screen. And now i got to have all this. And so it's not going to make you happy. If you're going, oh, if I just didn't have this, this old clunker with primer down one side and that backfires every time I'm in a school zone causing the kids to hit the ground and hide under the bushes, you know. If you think that you just had a better car, a nicer car, or more trinkets on your car, if you think that would make you finally be happy, you're, you're wrong. You're wrong. You know how I know it? I know that because I would bank that on at least 95% of the people in here, I would bank that the car you're driving now is nicer than the car you drove 10 or 20 years ago. And you're not happier now because of the car. You're no happier just because you're in that vehicle. No, we're, we're content now. We learn to be content now because if I'm content with what I have now, if he gives me more, I'll be content then as well. If we work hard now, if wealth comes, it comes, but we do not strive after money and we definitely don't strive after it at the expense of our family, our character, or our integrity. You know, I, I've worked with high school and college age people. I did it for a long time, like 20 years I was in youth ministry. And, and I'll, I'll just be honest with you. In all that time working with high school, college age students, I never met a kid who got to college his freshman year and, and who did not have a car, who seemed to be better, bitter and resentful about not having a car. They may have wanted one, but I never met one that was like, man, you know, my life just stinks. I can't believe my parents didn't give me a car. However, I will say this. I've met plenty of talented young people with expensive cars that struggled with monumental issues because they didn't know if dad loved them or not. Do not sacrifice your children to buy them trinkets. You hearing me? Do not neglect your children by getting them stuff they don't need at the cost of what they do need, which is the security and the safety of a mother and father who are there and they know loves them. All right, we don't strive after money. We strive for the glory of God. 
Now, it's not, a, not an enemy of ours. Money is not an enemy. It's a, it's a wonderful blessing from the Lord, but we just don't strive after it. That's not our goal in life. Our goal is the glory of God. And, and that's what we work for. Now, from there, we're going to move on to relationships inside the body, inside the covenant community of Christ. So he's just going to start off in verse 7. He said, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So, so, so he's saying, now let's move into the covenant community now. And, and within the church, there are leaders. He says, I want you to remember those leaders who led you to Jesus. He's going back into past, into the history. He says, watch their lives, imitate their faith and learn how to run this race co correctly. Now, here's the thing. The problem is there are many, many people in the church who do not have a great legacy of faith. You don't have this long history of, of family members, mom and dad who grew up, who, who, who raised you in church or whatever. And, and you didn't, and you've never had that father figure, that mother figure who showed you how to live this thing out correctly. But here's my, my challenge for you. If you never had that father figure or mother figure in the faith, then my fervent prayer and my fervent hope for you is that you will become that for someone else. So that whoever is next, whoever comes behind you, will one day say, oh, I remember him. He really helped me grow in the Lord. Oh, I remember her. She was such a woman of God. She taught me so much about following Jesus. Look, look at verse 17. Because he moves from talking about leaders in the past to leaders today. And, and listen, this is, this is a verse that a lot of, a lot of uh, pastors, when they preach Hebrews 13, they don't, they don't touch this verse, but I'm going <laughs> to. So let's do it. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Both very, very popular ideas in America today, by the way. Um, <laughs> obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, that's a really powerful thing. He says, they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. I want to say this. Never follow a man who doesn't understand that he will give an account for his leadership of you. There's a weight that I carry on my shoulders knowing that one day, when, I'm going to, when this is all said and done, I'm going to stand before Jesus when I breathe my last and I'm going to be held to account for how I led you. What I taught you. How I lived in, in your presence. Never follow a pastor who is not painfully aware that one day after he quits breathing, he's going to stand in front of Jesus and give an account for how he led, treated, and spent his life on the bride of Christ. If that peace is not there, then that man is leading you toward a house called his ego, and he will build the church based on how he looks rather than what's, on, what's best for the body. However, where you do have a man who will submit to Christ, who will pray, who will plead, who will not shirk the hard things and will lead by example, the scripture says, follow that man or woman. All right, let's get back to reading. I love verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not by foods which have benefited those, who de those devoted to them. <clears throat> we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is, uh, is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Now there's so much there, I don't have time to get into all the imagery and all the, the, that is saying there. But, but, but basically, here's, here's what he's warning against, in essence. He's saying, he, he's saying here, honor your leaders, and then he's going to follow that up by saying, but it's grace alone. Pay attention to what they're teaching. It's grace alone. He, he, he moves on to say, he says, do not listen to those who would teach an external religiosity that does not have its root in the heart. So, so he's really just saying, be careful and be warned about, what, about these people who say that if they say, oh, it's about eating this or drinking that or not eating this or not drinking that. If it's all about this checklist of do's and don'ts, he's attacking that checklist spirituality that says, do all these things and you're in or, and, or and don't do all these things or you're out. And, and, and the thing I love about this text is he, he says, hey, this is, he says, just 
Look at the people who do it that way. Did living like that benefit them? Is, is, do you really want to be like them? Is that what you're after? Look at these people who say, do this, 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 and this. And don't do this, 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 and this. And, I mean, do you look at them and go, hmm, you know, that is really living. That is really living. That's the fullness of God on earth. He points at them and said, is that really what you want to be? Is that what you're after? And he says, no, it's grace alone. And then he goes back to the tabernacle. And this is the part I wish I had had more time to unpack. And he teaches that the, he talks about, we read there, he's talking about food to eat and the sacrifices and the bodies of animals and that sort of thing. Here's, here's in a nutshell. The, the priest would eat all of the other sacrifices that were brought to the temple except for the sin offering. The sin offering was different. The sin offering would be taken outside of the, uh, the tabernacle, outside the camp, outside the, 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 wherever they were doing this, and it would be burned. It was not consumed. It was not for the priests to eat. In the same way, Jesus died outside the camp, out, outside the city. And what he's saying here is basically that the, the priest didn't bring you the salvation Christ and Christ alone did. Your salvation was not brought to you by the decision of men that would bring uh, about a new law, but by Jesus who went outside the camp and died. And so, all right, so I don't have time to unpack that, but outside the church, incarnational ministry, hospitality, care for the oppressed and poor, guarding our marriages, watching what our deep loves are, not chasing after money. Inside the church, honor your leaders if they submit to God and grace alone. Be, beware of any teaching that adds anything to cross. And now he's going to go on to the next thing, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach. That is such a powerful phrase. Bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over, their, over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Do them, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have, uh, that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. The, the key part to this next part is the, and the third thing that we should do inside the church is in verses 13 and 14. He says, therefore, let us go, in, go to him, Jesus, outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. He's saying, listen, you have to go outside of the place where everybody else is living. And go to the place, that hill of Calvary, that place where Christ died, and bear the reproach that he, that he bore. Listen, let me put it this way. You and I are not home. We're not home. We don't belong here. We don't belong here. And I'm here to tell you something that some of you need to hear. We will never really fit in here. There's always going to be something, if you're a follower of Christ, there's always going to be something where you will feel out of place living in this world. Some of us, we work so hard at trying to fit in and be accepted, and it's going to be a never-ending battle because the truth is we just don't fit in and we never will fit in, and that's okay. Because this is not our home. This is not where we live. This is not our city. This is a temporary dwelling. This is a temporary place. Where we belong is in the presence of God. We are part of the family of God. We belong in the household of God. He's prepared a place for us. That's where we belong. That's where our hearts are. That's where our, what our souls long for. That's where we're headed. That's where we want to be. And because of that, we will never ever feel comfortable. We'll never fit in in a world that is filled with brokenness and sin. And is filled with, with, with darkness because we are children of light. Let, let, me, let me put it this way. Contextually, Jesus is never going to be cool. 
It's one of the errors of many modern church models. They think that the church can be cool. Now, it doesn't, you know, it can be relevant, but it's, it's, it can't be cool. It was never meant to be cool. Let, let me, let me show, show you the way the scriptures would say it. I think this will help us understand the, the idea that I'm talking about here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. This is what it says. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. Isn't that beautiful? Your life is a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God, like perfume in His nostrils. But listen to the second part. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. So he's saying, okay, you have an aroma about your life. A Christ-like, because you, He has come into you, you sort of smell like Christ. But he says that smells very differently to somebody who's being saved, to a follower of Christ, it smells, than it does to somebody who's outside of Christ, who's not in the world. It smells very differently. Look at verse 16. To those who are perishing, we, we're, we're not a Christ-like beautiful fragrance of perfume to them. It says, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being, being saved, we are life-giving perfume. And who is adequate to, for such a task as this? Which means that, on the whole, on the whole, people don't like being told to repent. Your whole life following Christ is a rebuke to a sinful lifestyle without you ever saying a word. How many of you have ever had somebody uh, approach you or they talk about you behind their back and say, oh, they just think they're holier than thou. And you've never said anything to them about it. It's, it's the smell of death on them because they smell Christ in you. And that, that, that presence of God always brings conviction of their sins. And people don't like to be told to repent. I mean, I, I've never met a guy who, who, who's, who enjoyed being, being told to repent, you know. I mean, listen, I'm saved and I don't like it, all right? You know what I'm saying? So he gets, tells, tells me, hey, you need to repent. My response is, hey, you need to get out of my face. <laughs> you know, anybody can re relate with that, you know? And then I always, you know, come back later if the Lord is in the situation. And I'm like, you're right, I'm sorry, thanks for getting in my face. But Jesus said, I've sent you on mission I've sent you to declare repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Well, listen, you can't ask for forgiveness of sins if you're not confronted with your sin. And the whole message of Christ is a smell of death for those who are perishing. It's only for those who come to Christ that you begin to realize the beauty of the gospel and beauty of Christ. And so to those who are perishing, it's going to be unbelievably offensive. But to those who are being saved, it's the smell of life. That's why we're never going to really fit in. Because you smell like Christ. Some of you are like, I've been told I smell like a lot of things in my life, but I've never ever been told I smell like Christ. You do. You have the aroma of Christ in your life. And it's that aroma. It's the way you live. It's the way you talk. It's the way you, you treat people. It's the, way you, it's the things you choose to do. It's the way you treat people around you. All of these things together, it, it's an aroma, and they begin to sense there's something different about you. And for those that are walking in darkness, it's a, it's a, it's a declaration of conviction on their lives. And, and nobody likes that. It's an unpleasant moment. All right, I'll, I'll give his conclusion. In our, in our Connect Group discussion guide, I made this the verse to memorize this week because I, I love verses 20 and 21, specifically, especially verse 21. He says, now, now may the God of peace, and I, first of all, I love that, that phrase alone. Simply put, all of us, and we've talked about this before, if Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that we were created with eternity in our hearts, which is why I think we're insatiable. It's why no matter how much junk you get, no matter how much sex you have, how much money you acquire, how, how successful you become, late at night you are still haunted by you because you're trying to fill eternity with temporary things because nothing temporary can fill the whole of eternity. And so he says, may the God of peace, may the God who can finally bring peace to your soul. 
Now may the God of peace who brought, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Two things here. When God brings Jesus back from the dead, he brings you with him. And this isn't just talking about literal death here. Uh, this is talking about uh, God pulling us out of existence and into life. The, 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 the reality is that there's so many people who, who live their lives and so many people exist, but they never live. And the God of peace moves us out of existence and into life by the great shepherd of the sheep. Now this made a lot more sense to people living in the first century than it does for most of us in our industrialized society because we don't spend much time around sheep, right? I mean, I haven't, at least anyway. From, from what I've read, though, uh, sheep are really, really dumb animals from everything I've read, uh, which is a little bit insulting when you realize how often the Bible says that we are like sheep. Uh, but it's true. We are dumb as well. But they're just dumb. I mean, if you put them on a hill, they'll eat all the grass on that hill, and then they will just sit there until they eat their own ex excrement and die. That's pretty dumb. They have to be led. They have to be walked. In fact, some of them are so hard-headed that I've read that a shepherd sometimes will actually break their legs and then carry them with them so to, to teach them not to stray too far from the flock. By calling Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep, he's saying that you have not been abandoned here, that you have somebody looking out for you. Christ is leading, he's guiding, he's protecting even through times of sorrow, or as the psalmist would say, even through the valley of the shadow of death. Verse 21, and I'm going to end with this. He prays that the God of peace would equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Listen to this line. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so follow me. Because I, I could preach a whole message just on this, but I'm not going to. So, you know, don't break out in a cold sweat. Jesus is pleased. This is so powerful. Jesus is pleased not with, with not just the final product. He's pleased with the process. See, if he's only pleased with the final product, you're not the final product yet. And that would mean he's not pleased with you. You tracking with me on this? I hope you get this because this is the, the greatest news in the world that, that right now in all of my hardship, in all of my struggle, in all of my difficulty, in all of my doubt, Christ is working, he says. He is working every good thing that is pleasing to him. It's not a future version of me with which Christ is pleased. It's me now struggling, stumbling, confused, trying to figure it out. And God goes, I love this part. I love watching the transformation. I love changing hearts. I love changing this. I love bringing them from one thing to another. I love this process. To me, it's sort of like the artist in him. And if you don't believe God's an artist, then you haven't ever seen a sunrise or a sunset. Some of you are like, I've seen sunsets, but I have to get up too early for sunrise. But the artist, the artist sees what nobody else can, don't they? My wife is an artist. She can do this. I mean, I mean, they have this blank canvas, and they start stroking paint onto that thing, and they're already in love with the canvas. Me, I just see a little red, a little blue, or whatever, you know, and, but, th but they love the process. Not just the final product. They love the process. So I just want to say to you, look at me and hear this clearly. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. He loves the process. What that means is, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. You are not a disappointment to him. Because he is still working on you. You're still in process. And he loves the process, but he he, as we just read, he is working every good thing that is pleasing to him. So you blew it this week, okay? That, that's part of, that's going to be part of the process. He's going to use that. Some of you, your sin is owning you right now, and, 
And eventually, you're, you're going to get laid bare in front of a public group of people, and it's going to be the most embarrassing and horrific thing that's ever occurred. And, 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 but you know what? It might just be the one thing that actually finally heals you. The process. He loves the process. Now, I'm only talking to believers here. The message to believers is that he is producing in you every good thing that is pleasing to him. And sometimes the process of that is painful for us. But even in that, we know that he is at work. He is shaping. He is molding. He's trimming. He's sanding away. At times, he's chipping away. Anybody ever felt the hammer and chisel of God? You know what? That just makes me love him to know that I don't have a father that I can never please. No, he is pleased. He's pleased. And he's at work to make me who he wants me to be. He's shaping me. I'm in the process. I'm that lump of clay on the potter's wheel. And he's loving and enjoying the process of shaping me into everything he wants me to be. Let's pray. Lord, you're, you're so good. And I, I love you so much. And I, I want so badly for us to be that place, Father, that, that, that welcomes the stranger into this building, into our lives, into our homes. And Lord, I, I just I want you to, to sear in the deep places of our heart that, that we are missionaries right now. This is where we live and work. We are missionaries in this culture. And I pray, Lord, that we would get that and we would learn to live that way, learn to think that way. Because, Lord, as a missionary, it's not about us. It's about the mission, the people we've been called to reach. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be a place that, that terminates and spends our wealth on us. I, I want us to get the, that, that, that there are beat up and oppressed and ill-treated and impoverished people who are they're not there be, because they're lazy. But, but Lord, that, that you have given us wealth and we, we have an obligation to honor you in serving them. So Lord, help us. Help us to see new ways we can do that. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen our marriages. I pray you would loosen our, our grip on, on striving for, for money because it is a fleeting God that only satisfies for a moment. And I pray, Father, that brotherly love would, would continue in this place. And I pray, Father, that we might come outside of the camp, that we might spend our lives on the great call. And I pray, God, that you would protect this place and you would protect me and that we might always be a place that preaches grace alone, preaches the cross of Christ alone, and that we would never be a place full of religious police, police saying you have, to, you have to add this to the cross, but it's always the cross alone. And I, and, I, and I pray, Lord, that we would trust you and, Lord, that we would be willing to call sin, sin and let grace, grace cover sin, but Lord, also that you would call sin, sin in us and let grace cover us. And Lord, I, I dream about this text being a reality here. I, I long for it. I ache, ache for it. And I, I just ask that you would help us. And Lord, I pray that you would send the right pieces of the puzzle to make it happen. You've brought some in, Lord. I believe you're that are part, part of that puzzle. But God, I pray you would bring every, every person, every piece of that puzzle in that we would be what you've called us to be. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. I don't, I don't even know. I think this is how I end. I think this is what will, the call to action that we'll give. I wonder how many of you in this room would say, Pastor, I don't even know that I fully understand what it means. But I want Christ to teach me what it means to truly be a missionary in my neighborhood, in my workplace, where I live. And I want to surrender myself to be a missionary. That I learned not, not to think of myself, that I become more Christ-like, therefore more selfless. And as I do, Lord God, that I begin to think about the mission. So I'd be willing to let go of my own personal preferences, not just in church, but even in my own life. 
but you'd like to say, Pastor, pray for me. I want the Lord's help for me to become a missionary to the missionary in my life where I live. If that's you, would you slip your hand up right where you are? Boy, their hands up all over the place. My goodness, you just you just can't imagine the the impact that that can have. Because as we become missionaries where we live, then you know what? Those people start coming into this church, and this church grows, and we're able to have a greater impact on the community, and it just becomes this this like a snowball rolling down a hill, gaining momentum and getting larger and having a bigger impact. Father, you saw every hand that was raised. And there are so many of them. And my hand's up too, Lord. Lord, teach us what it means to be a missionary and help us to realize that that is a real call in our lives, that, that you haven't just called people to be missionaries in foreign countries, but God, you've called every child of God to be a missionary wherever you plant them. And God, we see that you have planted us here. And you've given us this time, this moment. And I pray, God, that we would take advantage of every opportunity. Teach us, Lord, to get past our own, uh, our own preferences, past our own embarrassment, past the, those, the, that self-awareness, God, that we would we'd begin to let you use us, that we would speak words of life, speak words of kindness, speak words of healing, that we would speak the gospel into the lives of people around us. And as we do, God, don't let us become judgmental and saying, ah, oh, you ought to get your life right. But Lord, that we would do it as other people who have found grace. That we would say, no, 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 that's nothing special about me. I've just as, I was just as broken, just as sinful as anybody else. But I've been covered and saved by the grace of God. And there's plenty of, plenty of grace for you. So Lord, make us the missionaries you want us to be. Use us to impact this city, this county, this nation, and this world. And we give you praise. In the strong, mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.